Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 169 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Matt is out on a business trip today, so Nick is back to join us again for this week's episode. So welcome back, Nick. Good to be here, as always. Uh, Before we begin, as always, want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on September 27th, and this data is from Ycharts. S&P 500 index down 7.8% for September and down 23.5% for the year. The Dow down 7.5% for the month and down 19.8% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 8.4% for the month and down 30.8% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index down 10.2% for the month, down 25.9% for the year. Then the Vanguard All World X United States ETF also down 10.2% for the month and down 27.6% for the year. Three-month treasury rate at 3.35%. The two-year treasury rate at 4.3%, uh, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Uh, the 10-year treasury rate sitting at 3.97%. So we've seen a, a pretty big move up in yields, Nick, uh, mm-hmm. since the, the Federal Reserve meeting, obviously. Um that's the highest that the two years been in, in quite some time. And I think the, the one year treasury might be even closer to like four and a half percent right now, yeah, I think um, right, yeah. which which I'm going to look up right now. But what is your your takeaway from that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many directions I could go with this, right? <laughs> um, I I, I want to say it's not surprising, but uh you know, it is a little surprising just to see how drastic the moves have been in the bond market. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting to to see how it how it plays out on the grand scale. And I'm trying not to to lead too much into our research pieces because I think we're going to get into. It a <laughs> well, bit yeah, we more, won't uh, we won't <laughs> spoil it for listeners then. But yeah, I'm just curious. I want to pull up this uh, this one year uh, Treasury yield just to see where we're at, because that was at like 4.2% last week when yeah, I checked it, was. it. Yeah. Let's see here. I can find this quick on Y charts. Yeah, it'll, uh, it'll be interesting. I've got a couple pieces on, on bonds to talk about and you know, the, there's been a lot more conversation about about the Tina trade and whether or not the Tina trade's going away. Yeah. For, for listeners who don't know, the the Tina is a is a fun, almost like a ha ha financial acronym that is there is no alternative, and that's what right. Um, that's a lot of financiers have said over the past not decade. the case anymore. And yeah, when you're looking at a four point three on a on a two year, that 
that's an alternative, right? Yeah. So, so it's actually uh, the one-year Treasury rate is at four point one six percent. But I think this is, you know, this is what people have been looking for for a long time. Nick, yeah. you know, we get the question all the time. Hey, I I have some money that I need to spend to put a down payment on a house or buy a new car in a year or two. And now you have options because the one-year Treasury rate last year um, was 0.09% mm-hmm. on this day one year ago. Yeah, which is which is pretty wild to it's think about. wild and <laughs> understatement, right? Yeah. That's a huge move. Yeah. That's a, a, a massive move. So in the long-term average, wow, my chart's got a lot of... A lot of good information here. Uh, the long-term average of the the two-year Treasury is uh, 2.85%. So obviously, well above that. But if people are looking for um, some yield, some safety uh, to save for near-term expenses, which I would define as anywhere, you know, maybe even as high as less than 18, 16 months, um, just to get a little bit of juice on that money rather than the savings account, which has gone up as well, but um, CD rates uh, higher right now. So not all bad. I know it's, it hasn't been a fun year uh, in terms of investments for people, but now there are some other options uh, to get some yield that people have been starved for for the past for several de- years. For a decade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, it's moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. Uh, the S and P 500 has been down the last six days in a row, um, as major market indices have retested their June low, uh, on the S and P 500, at least intraday, we made a new low, but I believe it closed back above Mm -hmm. it. Um, so we're just hovering right around those, those June lows right now. And I think that this is a crucial time and it's almost, you know, a make or break decision time for the S&P 500 and yeah. the other indices that we we follow closely because if we break lower I think you might see another quick quick fall of yeah. another 5 to 10% or we hold and and we move higher into the end of the year that's still yeah. to be to be seen but I think this is a pretty pretty big area for the markets right now. Yeah, definitely and there's a there's a number of uh shops that I saw yesterday came out with with quite bearish takes, BlackRock, uh, Goldman, Morgan Stanley's been bearish for a while, but um, I saw a Goldman forecast that they, they think it could even test the the uh, pre-COVID highs of mm-hmm. the market. So there are people on both sides of the fence, but uh, I think I, I, I feel like I see that a lot whenever things whenever you have a big sell-off, it's like, oh, all of a sudden now Goldman and Morgan and BlackRock, oh, now we're bearish. It's like, but you weren't, two weeks ago right that bearish and now it's all you know they, they get back in the headlines so yeah it's almost it's like they kind of act like goes. um like retail investors almost yeah. and they they flip from bullish to bearish pretty quickly yeah. and if we did retest those highs prior to covid nick that's only seven and a half percent away from where we are right now. right right it, so. it's not when you look at it on a chart it's from where we are and and sentiment in the market i don't i don't think it's wild to, to see it testing that level no i don't um, i don't think so either and i think that would be you know kind of kind of shocking for people that that would you know erase all of the gains in the s p yeah. 500 oh, yeah. going back to you know february uh you know early february yeah, of 2020. 2020 yeah yeah 
but that, that that stuff happens that's not yeah. uncommon for that to happen so we have to be open open to that um and this would be i think a logical place where it makes sense for it to do that with the weak seasonality in September, the beginning of October, before we go into a seasonally strong period for the markets, it it would not shock me if we did go back to the pre-COVID highs and then that's right where the the market stopped and started and to move higher again. Yeah. And then we'll so. be in earnings and kind of bounce, bounce from there. So Yep. Um, do you want to talk just briefly about what's been happening in the currency markets? I know we've seen some crazy moves, uh, obviously yeah. in the, the British pound. Um, so what's going on there and, and is it something that people need to be aware of or pay attention to at all? Yeah, I don't think anyone needs to, to stress about it too much from, uh, their personal retirement accounts. I don't, I don't think of it in that way. Um, partly because the the underlying uh, reasoning behind a lot of the currency volatility that you've probably seen in the headlines is is the strong U.S. dollar. Um, I could have grabbed a number of different headlines, but I grabbed one from from Reuters, and I'll just read a couple little highlights for you. Um, you know, the British pound uh, fell to an all-time low. The Japanese monetary intervention. Uh, they intervened to prop up a falling yen and the euro's deeper plunge into dollar parity. So you, know, you have the pound, you have the yen, you have the euro. Um, you know, at the same time, the U.S. dollar is trading at a two-decade peak. Um, and then this last quote I'll read for you is the U.S. dollar has uh, dominated due to soaring U.S. interest rates, a comparatively strong American economy and demand for a haven as global financial markets have turned more turbulent this year. That's really the story here. It's that from an economic point, and I know it's hard to say this and hard to even hear this whenever the market pricing looks the way it is, but our economy is sitting in a better place than a lot of these other places, particularly Europe with everything that's going on in the Russian and Ukraine war and their energy crisis. And, and if you look at, uh, England economic numbers, their GDP, their employment, their retail spending, all of that stuff is, is drastically uh, more negative, than more us. negative yeah. and a worse situation than, than we are in. So right. that's, that's really what's, what's driving this, this volatility and this fluctuation that you're seeing in the currency markets. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll, uh, I'll have Jenna throw a chart up uh, for the people watching on YouTube right now that I'll, I'll grab for after the podcast, but pretty much this year, the U S dollar and the S and P 500 have been completely inverse of each other. Yeah. So yeah, with the have. U.S. dollar rising, markets falling, and when we did get rallies, the bear market rallies, if you want to call that, earlier in March of this year and then in June until about a month ago, the dollar was was weaker. Mm -hmm. And it's not always like that, though. You know, if you look on a long term chart, there have been, of course, instances where the U.S. dollar has been going up and the S&P 500 goes up. S&P 500 goes down and the dollar goes down. But this year in 2022, it's been a, a pretty stark inverse correlation between those two assets. So yeah. uh, we'll go ahead and throw that that chart up on the YouTube page for people to look at that as well. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles and research from this week. The first thing I had was a tweet from Sentiment Trader on September 22nd. 
And he says, mom and pop have given up. This week joins just four others in 35 years with more than 60% of respondents being despondent or bearish in the AAII survey. One year returns after the others, 22.4%, 31.5%, 7.4%, and 56.9%. But of course, this time is different. And I know some people may be getting frustrated with us on you know how many contrarian points that we've made this year and and we're still going through a tough environment in the market but we have to remember that this stuff you know takes a long time to play out right um it doesn't necessarily mean that right when someone tweets this or puts out this piece of research meaning that hey right away we're going to go back to to all-time highs and a lot of these stats that that we've had is, you know, it references one year returns after this happens, which, mm-hmm. you know, we still have a while to get there. Right. Yeah. Um, but again, just another note to show um, just the extreme pessimism in the market. And, and eventually, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna turn around. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's a, you make a great point there is, uh, and just to, to kind of reiterate your point is that often, we and what we do here and how we invest we're looking very long term right i mean seven ten years five seven when you look at a five-year chart it's a lot different than right and it's so easy to get wrapped up in a month of selling a bad year a bad quarter if you take a deep breath you look at some of these indicators and you think in three years will i be happy that that I bought now or, or, or things like that. That's yeah. just kind of, yeah. Uh, and if we were, if know. we were day traders or swing traders for our clients, then I would have a completely different <laughs> outlook yeah. and I would have had a different yeah. tone this whole year, but sure. yeah. that's the, I think that's, that's really important. And I'm glad that you mentioned it is yeah. that because we are so long term, you know, we know that the market is in always a long term, two steps forward, one step back type of situation. Mm-hmm. And I do believe we're in that one step back situation right mm-hmm. now. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. (laughs) Next tweet I had was from Kelly Cox on September 6th. And Kelly said, if you've ever wondered why the 10-year yield matters for tech and crypto, here's why. Increase in rates equals increase of cost of money equals the decrease of future value over time. And many of us invest in tech for what it could be in the future, not what it is right now. So kind of going back to our Mm -hmm. point that you just made, Nick. And I think that this is a great tweet that Callie put out that simply explains to investors why interest rates matter for future profitability. Mm -hmm. So for those that aren't too in tune with financial statements, you know, interest expense is a line item on the income statement that can be pretty much a direct contributor to reducing, you know, net profits for a company. So a company could be a small one, right? A company could be growing their revenues at a pretty decent clip, but if their borrowing costs go up, then it's going to slow their earnings or potentially Mm -hmm. even go into negative earnings growth because that line item obviously comes, comes after revenue. And, and, you know, there's a lot more that goes into it than that, but just for simplicity's sake, I want, people to understand why higher interest rates are, quote unquote, uh, a headwind for stock prices and for future profitability, Um, because that's, you know, that's that's an expense just like any other operating expense that a company has. Um, And, you know, I think that's why you've seen 
you know, such a sell off in the markets this year, primarily is just because of the, the rise in interest rates. They're trying to price in the rise in interest rates. The market's trying to price that in. Yeah. So or has been trying to price it in. Uh, last thing I had is a piece of research from Ally Financial, um, and it's sellers of investments based on generations. So this goes back for the last 12 months uh, from August of this year. So the research says generational selling opportunity, intriguing statistics, seems just about every millennial sold some or all of their investments. Could have to do with life stages, but hard to guess what is specifically driving this. The other key thing that sticks out in this chart, which I'll have Jenna put up on the YouTube page and it'll be in our show notes, is that aside from millennials, everyone else held tight. That gels with my previous observations about the difference between very bearish surveys versus relatively minor movement in equity allocations and margin positions. So what you're going to see if you're watching on YouTube is that of the millennials that they surveyed, 49% said that they're selling some or all of their investments within the past 12 months. Gen X, that falls to 21%, Gen Z, 17%, and Boomers, uh, 13%. So this is kind of, uh, you know, the older, the wiser type yeah, of situation. Huge, that's a huge bummer for millennials. That's not that's not a good percentage. No, and I think <laughs> I think it goes back to you know millennials. Obviously, they're still young. They're still getting their feet under them with their their um, their jobs and everything and their money, but they haven't you know for the most part, I don't think taking that step to reach out to a professional or reach out to an advisor yeah. to learn about this stuff. And, you know, this makes me think of uh, a gentleman that we worked with uh, that we do consulting with with another company. It's a publicly traded company. They have an uh, employee stock purchase plan. And when he first started, when he was like 20 years old, his manager just told him to max out how much, you know, stock of this company that he could buy each and every week because the company gave him a match, too. And then he didn't touch it for his like 30 or 40 year working career. And when he retired, he started getting um, checks in the mail for like 30 or 40 grand every quarter. And he didn't know what it was. And it ended up being his dividend check from this company stock that he had been buying his whole career. And, all right. <laughs> and, and which means he had, you know, five, six, seven million dollars of this this company stock and he yeah. didn't even know it. Yeah. Um, but that just goes to show you that the longer term mindset that you have, mm-hmm. you can be rewarded. And I'm not saying being short term and and trading and investing over three to six to nine month periods can't be successful. But if this isn't your everyday job, it makes it a lot harder to mm-hmm. be shorter term like that yeah absolutely and i think the the one the the only other point i can think of would be houses Mm -hmm. i bet a bunch of millennials had to sell their their investments maybe it was even a a small individual account where they were just accruing some money and they had to they had to sell it for a down payment on the house Mm -hmm. Um, but that would that would be the only thing i can think that makes sense other than what you're talking about with um 
core decisions, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and to say that. just talking about housing really quick, you know, I saw this yesterday, but the average mortgage right now for a new house, Nick, is over 7%. Oh, yeah. Right now. Yeah. Which is hard. Um, yeah, the, the number, yeah, the something's, the num- I, watched, I, I read some research yesterday about this and I, I considered putting in the, in the podcast, but I, I didn't go with it, but it was something like the, the median home price in the U.S. relative to the median salary uh, would be uh, 40, like the mortgage payment, including PMI and everything, would be like 44% of their income. Mm-hmm. I saw that as well. Level. Which is, which is tough, which I mean, yeah. something has to give. And I know that a lot of people aren't very happy or especially millennials, younger generations, people that are looking to buy a home are not happy with yeah, uh, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell right now, because he's making it uh, pretty close to unaffordable to, to buy a new home. But the other side of the coin too is Nick, that I think most of the people in America took advantage of refinancing when mm-hmm. interest rates or mortgage rates were near two to 3%. Yep. So people that are in their homes right now are fine, but mm-hmm. it's just that group of new people looking for a new home um makes it it, it extremely challenging and you know i've been and and matt's been the same way throughout this whole year pounding the table that you know we didn't think we were going to have another uh housing crisis like we did in 07 and 08 because it's a different type of environment they're different problems but you know i could see over the next several years house housing uh, prices come in by 20 to 30%. And that wouldn't surprise me, obviously different situation than it was in 07 or 08, but something's going to have to give here eventually. Yeah. I, I I tend to agree. Um, We'll see. It'll be interesting. uh, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So my first piece here is on institutional selling pressure in 2022. And this is from S and P global market intelligence uh research group um this is actually uh i got this from a former colleague so i'm very familiar with this report i've worked with this data for for six a little more than six years so um i'll have jenna throw the throw the chart up here and i'll just i'll read that there's one line that uh that they had in the report, uh, which is as follows against a backdrop of growing inflation fears, selling by institutional investors accelerated to its highest levels in 2022. The interesting thing for me here is, uh, is the chart, um, which shows you capital flows across institutions, hedge funds, and retail. And I'm going to break this down somewhat quickly. I could go way deep in the weeds. Again, I'm very, very familiar with this data, but the way to think about, Retail is your your average mom and pop. You know, if, if I were to go and open a Fidelity account and trade a couple stocks, I'd be a retail investor. Hedge fund, think your your classic Wall Street, the guys that are long and short and really fast, high turnover. Uh, their their turnover in a portfolio could be upwards of 150 percent, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. The opposite of how we right. we do things in wealth management, right? And then your institutions are your big boys, the big money. Um, Fidelity Investment Group, Capital Group, uh, BlackRock, big, huge institutions with billions and billions and billions of dollars. Like mm-hmm. the Capital Group, we're talking like $800 billion, something around that level. Mm-hmm. So that's what the, and the institutional money oftentimes, not always, but they can really, 
um, move a stock up or down. And so I just thought this chart was interesting um, when you see it, particularly uh, over over the S&P 500 as to how much selling these institutions have have contributed over this past year. It makes a lot of sense when you see the when you see the price action as well. Um, and it's very interesting where we are sitting right now with what we talked about in the bond market. Um, I wonder if these institutions, generally speaking, were, were much more overweight equities over the past 10 years because of the, the Tina trade. There is no alternative. Mm-hmm. So um, it would be interesting to see if, see if this turns around. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, and the only thought I would have for you is if you could get your hands on it or from your colleague, um, I'd like to see this chart over the last like decade or last yeah. two decades to see, you know, yeah. how well the institutions are on, on timing the market and buying and selling yeah. near highs and lows. So I think that would be interesting for, for listeners to see is if we can get our hands on this chart going back a decade or two, that that would be pretty interesting and probably eye-opening for people. Yeah, it would be. And I can tell you from, from experience that they will not be able to pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the tracking, the historical data is, is very difficult in that field because the way that they put this, this report together, actually just doing this chart is, is pretty challenging. And, and the reason it's challenging is because S and P builds this report and it's, it's hard data. It's based on their clients, right? They're insiders. So their clients are publicly traded stocks, right? So, you know, Apple, Amazon, ConocoPhillips, like all these big companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they, when I was there, they had 800 plus corporate clients, right? So S&P 500, we have eight, they had 800, right? When I was there, we had, we had about that many. They probably have a few more now, I would guess. Uh, and the way they, they pull the data in is based on custodial data from each individual ticker. And mm-hmm. then they have to take, and, and you have to build these firewalls, these safeguards, because it's insider data. So you got to be really careful so they right. know, don't share that. So speaking from experience, I know how difficult that chart is, which is. Well, never mind. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get there eventually. Yeah, I would, I would love it if they did because it, it is interesting. It is interesting data, but that's kind of how it's the, the data is built. So um, that that leads me kind of into that 60-40 conversation that, that we were we were trending, um, which is a tweet from uh, Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz. Uh, this is a tweet from yesterday. Um and it's about investment grade bond yields shooting higher. Uh, we have a chart here for you, and Lisa says the following. U.S. investment grade bond yields are the highest since 2009 at 5.63. That's more than double where they were at the end of the last year. It's hard to overstate just how fast some of these moves have been, even if the trading has been orderly and consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my comments here were the word, which I've mentioned a couple of times now is the Tina trade. And then you know, thinking about the, the 60, 40 portfolio and just having a, a little chuckle when just thinking about, well, it's like two, three months ago and people and you're seeing research is the 60, 40 portfolio dead. Right. I mean, you see moves like this, it's like, Oh, 60, 40 looks pretty good. right now. Yeah. So yeah. What, what do you think? No, I think it's just interesting. Um, obviously with the move up in, in yields, uh, corporate debt is gonna, is gonna yield more as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like using like a, a security like LQD, which is the iShares, uh, investment grade corporate bond ETF. It's, it's down 22% this year. I mean, that's a lot for, mm-hmm for corporate bonds, right? Yeah. For investment grade 
corporate bonds. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a really, really challenging year for, for investors simply because of the, the weakness in the bond market. Yep. Um, so yeah, interesting, interesting point. We'll see how high, uh, these things go, but, um, you know, I think the bank or excuse me, uh, Europe, I think is already, uh, talking about, um, buying bonds again mm -hmm. so providing yeah. fiscal stimulus so i wonder how far the u.s is behind them in doing that because i, I don't know I, I just don't know how how they can keep up this aggressive rate hike for for too much longer yeah we'll we'll see they're uh they seem pretty determined to get to get inflation under the control yeah so. i mean he was i mean he yeah. had powell had a complete change of character which yeah. you know i I think he, for the most part, during the COVID crisis, did a good job in navigating it. But obviously, I think he overstayed his welcome a little bit with the stimulus that was provided. And now he's, you know, trying to catch up. make up for that and catch yeah. up on, on that mistake. And I don't think that's that's a secret. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously... They missed Not. inflation. They missed. Yeah, yeah. They should it's have hiked that, a year sooner. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too bad that That's we are right. where we are right now. But um, you it know, happens. these things have consequences when when you have too much money sloshing around for too long. Yep, you're already seeing the the uh, the parallels between Powell and Volcker start to come out. <laughs> I like know. That was only a Which matter. is again, that's like comparing apples to oranges, in my it, opinion. It is uh, very much but, so. But, uh, nonetheless some some interesting comments i'm sure are out there my last piece is uh you know just staying on the trend of the bond market um this is a piece from compound research from uh the 26th um and it's showing a, a big chart a big matrix of government bond yields from 2020 to now um and charlie says this in may 2020 there were 21 countries around the world with negative yields. Switzerland actually had a negative yield on its 50-year government bond. And Whoa. in parentheses, he says that's not a typo. That is crazy. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Fast you're paying to, <laughs> you're paying 38 bips to lock up your money for 50 years. Yeah. Wow. Wild. <laughs> he says, fast forward to today, and only one country, there's only one country with negative yields remaining. Japan. Uh, but that too may soon change with inflation in Japan rising to its highest level since 2014 at 3%. Um, the matrix, when you look at it, it really speaks for itself. It's one of the reasons I like it is because, you know, you could just look at it and really get a sense as to, to how fast countries around the world have had to adapt their monetary policy to deal with the rampant inflation worldwide, it's not just in the US, worldwide to deal with this massive shock to, to our lives with, with COVID, you know, the, the, supply, um, the supply shock, the demand shock. I mean, it's, it's just such a massive shock in, in the economic cycle. And we talked about it, I remember talking about six months ago. Right. Um, and looking at charts and just trying to explain how massive that is when you see jobs fall that much and come back that quick. I mean, it's, we, we've not seen anything like it in history. And I think this chart illustrates that and what the, the central banking policy has had to do to try to keep up with it. And, right. and um, yeah, so 
What, what are your thoughts? I'm just look, I'm just kind of scanning this this chart here that you put in here. It's interesting. The uh, Czech Republic one year bond is paying six point six three percent right mm-hmm. now, which yep. is which is wild. It's just wild <laughs> to to think about. Like that's you know, and that's what I'm wondering. At what point? Do people just start loading into treasuries because we haven't seen it yet? I mean, I would have thought that once, you know, the two year got over maybe like 3%, people would have started buying. But here we are sitting at 4.2% or whatever it is. And yields can continue to go up and no one's really piling into treasury at this point. So, you know, is it going to take it, you know, the two year or the, the five year getting up to, Five, five or six percent yeah. to which at that point you're starting to approach the long-term average of stocks yeah so it's like at one at what point are people going to start loading into treasuries and i think it's just a matter of time until they do but yeah. um i wonder when the the uncle point's going to be yeah the the other thing that's interesting to think about that supply and demand perspective from the treasuries is thinking about how much more the fed has on their balance sheet I mean, they can really, really uh, flood the market um, and let that balance sheet taper at a at a much more aggressive rate than they right. have. So that that will definitely impact that, mm-hmm. right? So it'll it'll be interesting. Uh, but yeah, the six point six percent that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty. That's wild. That's wild. That's wild. Uh, definitely a, a, a uh, and I'm sure our listeners know this, but uh, the Czech Republic two-year yield and one-year yield is not as safe as the United States two and one-year yield. <laughs> Correct. So yeah, just thanks start, for Just throwing that out that there. Out. It's yeah. not a guarantee. <laughs> it's not like it's not like U.S. Treasury rates. That's why U.S. Treasury rates are the safe haven is because we've never defaulted. Other governments have defaulted. So yep. just got to throw Full that out there. for credit. <laughs> the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, well, just to keep it short for uh, listeners uh, here, Nick, and we got a couple other things to get to today, I'm going to push my financial planning topic of the week to the next time we record. Um, so with that, anything else before we leave it off for the week? No, that was great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks always for, fun. Thanks for joining us, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 169 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonder the week, a wonderful week, um, and this Friday will mark the end of a uh, trading quarter, quarter number three. Um, so next week we will be entering Q4, uh, which again, just how it's been every end of quarter this year. People are excited to start fresh and get into a new quarter, hoping uh, that something changes from a stock market return standpoint. Indeed. So uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.